Well, the year was 1973. It was the day after Christmas. And the movie The Exorcist was released. Tells the story of a little girl who gets possessed by an ancient demon. She displays supernatural strength, becomes extremely vulgar, and although thankfully I haven't seen the movie, I do know of this scene where her head spins around, a 360. A pair of Catholic priests work together to perform an exorcism, and apparently it works, but it costs both of them their lives. Anyway, this movie became one of the highest grossing of all time, especially at the time, over $441 million worldwide. It seemed like everyone saw it and had a real effect on our culture, because now, just about every year, you can count on dozens of books and movies and TV shows that highlight this supernatural world of demons. Of course, if you see something on TV, it must be true. So maybe this explains why in recent years there's been a rise in the belief in the supernatural. Now, for 18 to 29-year-olds, the youth, the number has gone up close to 66%. Two-thirds believe that demon possession is a real thing. No doubt influenced by all these movies. Part of you might think that's good news because it is real and it's better than having a culture that doesn't believe in the supernatural. But any good news immediately goes out the window when you realize that the vast majority of people are totally clueless as to what the Bible actually says about demons, demon possession. Their beliefs are based on Hollywood, not scripture, and they're loaded with misinformation and superstition and error. And sadly, this works itself backward into the church, and now Christians even find themselves buying into Hollywood's version of demons. When you pair this with the rise of the charismatic movement, it leads to real chaos, especially concerning demons and how to deal with them. Most Christians, I would say even, believe that the way you deal with demons is pretty much as you saw in the movie The Exorcist. You get a couple of holy men... Give them some holy water, you know, a big Bible, a shiny cross. Have them go in there and just yelling match back and forth with the demon, commanding him to come out, of course, in the name of Jesus for, for hours, for days. That's how you do it, right? I mean, good luck finding that anywhere in the Bible. Some Christians now believe demons can possess anything. So you find them performing exorcisms not just on people, but on books, on television sets, cars, cameras. Houses, you name it, anything. Demons now are made responsible for everything. There's demons for everything now. Demon of anger, demon of lust, demon of depression, demon of hair loss, demon of acid reflux. (laughs) Not joking. I mean, it, it is that extreme. And this obsession with demons combined with theological error can turn very deadly. Just this past week, a woman in Alabama was arrested for killing her two children one- and two-year-old, as well as wounding two others while performing an exorcism on them. She said she saw the children's eyes blacken as demons entered their body, claimed an exorcism was necessary. Just so happens that she was the leader of a group called the Demon Assassins. Talk about pure evil. That's evil right there. And this is the type of spiritual chaos you get when error creeps into the church. Such people blame demons for everything. They don't worry about sin or the flesh. They focus, therefore, on exorcisms, giving no attention to repentance, salvation, spiritual growth. And the result is a false sense of deliverance. Don't get me wrong, though. Demons are real. And demon possession 
is real. Spiritual warfare is real, but most are engaged in the wrong way. They're swinging blindly against the wind. They're doing no real damage to the enemy. They're offering no real defense. And you can tell we need some balance. More importantly, we need the truth to set us straight. Well, what's really going on here? I don't care what this person says. I don't care what experience that person has had. I definitely don't care what Hollywood says. Just tell me, what, what does God say in his word about this issue, about demons? And that's what we want to find out today. Now, in case you're wondering, you might be a little confused. What, what brings this up? Why are we talking about this? Well, there is a tie-in with the Gospel of Mark. Here on Sunday mornings, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. And several times already, we've seen Jesus do what? Cast out demons. And next, or not next week, but soon in chapter 6 of Mark, we'll even see the apostles start to cast out demons. And even just last week, we studied this passage, the Gerasene demoniac from Mark chapter 5. This bizarre story of a man possessed by thousands of demons who tormented him before Christ delivered him. And these passages, they all assume that demons and demon possession is real. And they all assume that you know a thing or two about demons and demon possession. But I find that today, that's not always the case. A lot of Christians today are either entirely ignorant about demons, or they've bought into the Hollywood version of demons. And this severely impairs your ability to just understand Scripture itself, the plain meaning of the word. You need a foundation of truth to understand what's going on, especially as we go through Mark. And that's why we need to study this issue. And then furthermore, when we, when we look at the Gospels and you encounter demons and demon possession, it also makes us wonder, you know, is this, does this still happen today? I mean, really, is this still really happening? If so, what, what do we do about it? I mean, are we expected to do what Jesus did? Are we, are we supposed to be exorcists? Are all of us like that? What, what's the deal? And then what do we make of all these people today who claim they are and they had these experiences and, and just what, what's going on? Hopefully you can tell it's actually a far more relevant and important topic than you might otherwise have thought. We want to understand scripture. We, we want to get it right. And we want to avoid the, the gross errors that so many have fallen into. That's why we're going to devote some time to this topic of demons and demon possession. That being said, it's still quite ambitious. It would take weeks, months to study everything the Bible had to say about demons exhaustively. We don't want to do that. We don't have that time. We don't want to sidetrack from Mark for that long. So I landed on a two-parter. It's going to be a two-parter this week and next. We're going to study what the Bible says about demons. We really want to get to the bottom of it. Make sense of what's going on in Christ's day, what we see back then, and what we see today, what's going on today. Just try and make heads and tails of all this. And I figured the best way to go about this is via good old question and answer format. That's what we're going to do. 20 to be exact. 20 Bible-based questions and answers about demons. That's our, our quest this week and next. 20 Bible-based questions and answers about demons. And I'll just bet that all of you, at the least, have had some of these questions. You've wondered some of these things. And I want to provide you with some biblical answers to set us straight. I'm sure some of this will inform you. Some of this will shock you. Some of this will surprise you. But I also hope that 
Some of this will encourage you in your walk, even in the face of demons. And you'll see what I mean shortly. But let's get started. We have 20 questions to go through this week and our next time together. We'll start with this. Very simple. What are demons? Question one. What are demons? And the short answer is angels. Yeah, you heard heard me right. Demons are angels. They're the same thing. Before God created this earth, the planet itself, he created this host of spiritual beings. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 tells us that these beings, they belong to that invisible heavenly realm. And demons are angels. Being spiritual, they're not subject to physical death like we humans are. There's no such thing as a physical death for a spiritual being. However, they are susceptible to spiritual death. And that's what demons are. They are spiritually dead angels. Spiritually dead angels. Remember, death in the Bible means separation. Spiritual death is a spiritual separation from God's special presence, and, and that's what demons are. They are angels, originally created good, But they have sinned, they've rebelled against God, and consequently, they were separated from God's holy presence. Satan was one of those angels, originally created good. He was the the greatest. He led this rebellion against God, and we we can assemble from Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, that one-third of the angels fell along with him. That when Satan rebelled, he took with him and and led along a third of the angels. If we're wondering how many they are, the Bible tells us that God created myriads of myriads of angels. It's the biggest number they had. They called it myriads. At least we would say 10,000. So putting those together, though, we get at the very least tens, if not hundreds of millions of angels and demons, if not more. We don't know. Also note this, there is no plan of redemption for these fallen angels. They have no hope. They rebelled like mankind has. But they will only ever know God's justice. They will never know God's mercy. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, God does not give help to angels. doesn't give help to angels, only to man. Jesus came, not as an angel, but as a man, to redeem, not angels, but man. And so they are forever separated from God. And now they're just left awaiting a final judgment. Question number two. Are demons real? I just want to throw this in here. We've already presumed that they are. The answer is going to be yes, plain and simple. But I wanted to throw this in just to let you know and establish that we're building this off of the authority of Scripture. And Scripture makes it very plain and simple that yes, demons are real. The Bible would leave other supernatural beings in the realm of fiction, like ghosts and vampires and werewolves. No mention of them. But demons are everywhere assumed to be very real and presented to us. Again, belonging to that, the invisible, the heavenly realm, they cannot be seen unless one's eyes are open to see them. This reminds me of 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. It tells of Elisha and the Arameans... They surrounded Elisha and they were, they were going to kill him. And they were excited to kill Elisha. They finally wanted to take down this prophet of God. And so they surround him. But Elisha wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid. His servant, though, was shaking in his boots. So Elisha 
opened his eyes to see. And around the city, in the mountains surrounding the city, the servant saw horses and chariots of fire everywhere with angels upon them. And they were there to protect them. And demons, demons are like that. They likewise exist in the unseen spiritual realm. Only they're not there to serve and protect. They're not there to protect God's people, just the opposite. We'll get to that in a little bit. Let's do this now. I want to just teach you a little bit more about demons in a kind of a comparison contrast way. So question three, how are demons like humans? Just so by comparison, how are demons like humans? Well, just briefly by way of comparison. First, demons are moral beings. They are moral beings, meaning they know right and wrong. They know good from evil. They're capable of good and evil. Just like us. And likewise, they also know God. They were created to know and to worship God. Doesn't mean they do. Doesn't mean we always do. But they know God. James 2.19 makes it very clear. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe. But shudder. They, they fear. They know God. Perhaps better than we do in a sense. But they fear. Also, contrary to popular misconceptions, demons, like humans, they're not omnipresent, they're not omniscient, they're not omnipotent. Which means, translation, they don't know everything, they're in one place at one time, and they're not all-powerful, just like us. They share those limitations, just like us. They're a creature, they're not the creator. That being said, question four, how are demons unlike humans? How are they unlike humans? And for one, you know, although they may not be God, all-powerful, compared to humans, they are vastly smarter, wiser, and more powerful. Hebrews chapter 2, which says a lot about angels and, and demons in general, Hebrews 2, 7 says they're just a higher order of being. Us humans, were higher than animals, and angels and demons, they're higher than man. They're more magnificent creatures. Just think about this. They have been alive since the beginning of creation. What's, what's that like? They've been conscious. They've been alive since the beginning. Before God created the planet, he made the angels. So what is that like? I mean, do you, do you think they know a thing or two? They don't, they're not omniscient. But you think they learned a thing or two over the years? They've assembled a vast knowledge of God, of creation, of man. Just by observation, they've been observing man for thousands of years. They know very well the human condition, the human problem, and how to take you down via temptation. Let me also throw in here that demons, unlike, human, or unlike humans, have no marriage. The institution of marriage does not exist for angels and demons. They don't seem to reproduce. Their numbers are fixed. God created them, and, and that's it. That's all there are. That's what it seems. Nothing else is told to us. This kind of makes sense because they have no female gender. Did you know that? There's not a single example in the entire Bible of a female angel or demon. Not one. Anywhere. And let me just throw in there, since I'm at it, there's not a single example in the entire Bible of an angel or a demon with wings. Never. The cherubim, the seraphim, they're not angels. They're a different creature. Angels, none with wings. 
Not a single one. So I'm going to assume that most of you, hopefully all of you, you don't have demon statues in your house. You might have angel statues or figurines, though. Little Christmas, or, Christmas ornaments. So if you're allowed to be biblical, you got to go home. First, you've got to throw away all the female ones, which is probably all of them. And then the rest, you have to break off their wings. And then you're left with some biblical figurines. But even then, why do you have them? Well, let's move on. Question number five. What do demons do? What do demons do? Hebrews chapter 1, 14 describes good angels as ministering spirits rendering service to believers for their good. That's what we will call them good angels are. They render service to God's saints. They're ministering spirits. That's pretty much what demons do, just for evil, not for good. They're focused on earth, knowing that the most effective way they can spoil God's creation is by afflicting man. And demons work for Satan. That is true. Twice, demons are referred to as his angels, meaning Satan's angels. He's described as the ruler of the demons. Satan himself is a fallen angel. He was the greatest of them all. But he too is not omnipresent, meaning Satan exists in one place at one time. Which means that in all likelihood you have never encountered him unbeknownst to you. That being said, his soldiers abound. They're all over the place. And they're an extension of his power. And together, Satan and demons aggressively oppose God and his will. And they do that chiefly by aggressively opposing God's truth. It's their greatest tactic because they know they can inflict the most damage by attacking the truth. They know if they can just keep people from the truth, keep them believing a lie, keep them away from the salvation, they've done the most damage. And so it's no surprise then to find demons as being the real source behind false religions, idolatry, and the occult. And that's what the Bible says. Deuteronomy chapter 32. A significant passage, Moses, he's recalling the history of Israel or what's going on and he speaks of how they are forsaking, it, forsaking God, going after strange gods, sacrificing to their idols. But what are they really doing in those sacrifices? Deuteronomy 32, verse 17 says, Moses says, they sacrificed to demons who were not God. He himself identifies demons as the real source behind these idols. And here's another one. Turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, another clear example. This psalm similarly recounts Israel's history. And starting at verse 34, we get to that period where it recalls how Israel went astray. They forsook or forsake the one true God. They went after other gods, the gods of their pagan neighbors. Remember, they were supposed to drive them out of the land, but they didn't. And they started to worship these Canaanite pagan idols. But notice how the psalmist interprets that worship. Starting at verse 34 of Psalm 106. They, Israel, did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them 
They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. But you can see here the link established again between this false worship, this idolatrous worship, and demons. I'll give you one example. Back in that time, there was an ancient deity of the Canaanites known as Molech. Heard that before? Molech? You know how you worshipped Molech? One of the ways they did that was they had this big statue, huge statue, and his arms were long and out, outstretched. And under the arms, a, a huge inferno, a fire was built, a massive fire. And you would go up to the top, you would take your child, you'd put him at the top of the arms, and he or her would just roll down the arms into the fire. And so you would kill, sacrifice, they would say, your son or your daughter, to worship Molech. That's how you worship Molech. Does that sound demonically inspired to you? Yeah, that's a yes. That's pure evil. You look at the Mesopotamian pantheon of gods like Baal, the Egyptian pantheon of gods like Ra, the Greek pantheon of gods like Zeus, and all over the more, more of them. They're all demonically inspired. Even in the New Testament, Paul explicitly draws a connection between Gentiles serving and offering to their pagan gods and demon worship. Demons are the, the powers behind this idolatry. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. All false religions counterfeit the truth. They lead people away from God. That's the mission of demons. Additionally, I'll mention this. Demons are presented as one source of false doctrine in the church. If you're quick, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Through false believers, demons are able to bring heresy into the church. And again, this is their greatest tactic to attack the truth, to present a lie. If they can keep people away from the truth, they win. If they can convince someone who's really sick spiritually that you're healthy, you're just fine, they've won. They've convinced the sick that they're healthy. Therefore, they, need no, they have no need of the real truth, the real gospel. They have won. 1 Timothy chapter 4, just look at verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. It continues, but we'll stop there. Surely some of the error and the heresy that has made its way into the church has behind it a demonic plan, a demonic inspiration. Well, now it's time to get a little bit more specific. And question five was all about what do demons do, kind of in general. Question number six, let's ask in particular, how can demons affect true believers? Let's talk about us now. How can demons affect true believers? I'll give you three words to keep it simple. Tempt, test, and persecute. That's how. Tempt, test, and persecute. That's how Satan and demons can affect true believers. Just think of how Satan himself afflicted Jesus during his time on earth. 
And pretty much the same can happen to you. First, there's temptation. Demons can tempt believers to sin. They can do this through influence, through circumstances. Keep in mind, though, demons cannot make believers sin. But they don't really have to. They know the human condition well enough to provide you temptation and let your flesh take care of the rest. They know how that works. Secondly, there's testing. Demons can be responsible for some of the trials and tribulations you encounter in life. So certainly the case of Job. He lost his wealth, his health, and his children. And we actually learn that those circumstances, which seemed just human or or natural, actually were demonic. This also reminds me of Luke chapter 22, verse 31. It's right before the crucifixion, and Jesus talks to Peter. You remember what he said to him? He said to Peter, hey, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Remember that? In other words, Satan has demanded permission to send you through a fiery trial, and he wants to take you down. And by the way, Jesus gave him that permission, but he prayed for him that his faith would not fail. This is in reference to Peter denying Jesus three times, which he did. He stumbled. He didn't fall, but he stumbled. Nonetheless, we learn that those circumstances which tried Peter actually were demonically inspired. Demons can tempt. They can test. Third, they can persecute. And this is related to testing, but nonetheless, it's confirmed in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-10. through 10. That's where Satan is pictured as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and by extension, demons as well. We're told to resist him. Believers can, and you should resist them. This doesn't mean you will escape suffering in life. And we have no idea which is which, but some of your suffering may be caused by demons. We never know. But nonetheless, it can be true. Demons can persecute you. Another example, many in the early church suffered persecution by the hands of the Romans. The Romans were to blame, right? Some were even killed. They were burnt at the stake. Some were even thrown to literal lions. And just do you think that some of that was demonically inspired? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised in the least if we find out in hindsight that it was. I want to be crystal clear about one thing, though, and you have to pay attention here. Understand this. True believers can never, ever be possessed by demons. True believers can never be possessed by demons. Now, I know we haven't actually defined demon possession yet. We'll get to that. In brief, it involves a demon taking control of a person. And again, that can never, ever happen to a true born-again, regenerate believer. And notice how I'm qualifying that. They must be, in God's eyes, truly born again. You might ask, well, why do you say that? Well, for believers, you are God's possession. When he saved you, he transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's Colossians 1.13. And you are no longer under Satan's lordship. You are under Christ's lordship now. And Jesus will keep you from demon possession. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 3 reads, 
But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. speaks of God, keeps the, God keeping the one born of him, and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We also learn, excuse me, we also learn, Colossians 1.27 tells us, if you're a believer, then you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in you. We are united to Christ. Ephesians 1.13 tells us, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You are sealed with God's Spirit. And then John chapter 14, verse 23 tells us, if you're a believer, you have the Father in you. It says God himself, the Father, will come and make his abode with us. So it's like at salvation, the whole triune God comes together, makes his presence known within us, with our spirit. And God doesn't like sharing space with demons. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And demons have no space in God's temple. So get this very straight. Contrary to all the chaos and the error we see coming out of some Christian circles today, it is not possible for a true born-again believer to be demon-possessed. Just not possible. It's also probably a good place for me to add this, that it's also not possible for demons to steal your salvation. It's not possible for demons to steal your salvation or to unsave you. We can speak forever on this, but I'll be brief. Now Christ is your shepherd, and he doesn't lose his sheep. None are lost, none are stolen, ever. None are taken from the Father's hand. You're in there, you're secure. We also can think of Romans chapter 8. Nothing can unsave you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And down in verse 38, Paul includes neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities. And angels, he's referring to to the good angels. Principalities is a word often used to refer to dark forces, namely demons. So nothing can separate you, and he includes death and demons. Even that can't separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing can unsave you. Christians can be tempted, tested, and persecuted by demons, but they can never be possessed or unsaved. Now, you know the story is going to be different for the unregenerate. Question number seven. How can demons affect the unregenerate? We just talked about how demons can affect true believers. Now, for the unbeliever, the false believer, how can demons affect the unregenerate? And you can probably guess. Just like believers, demons can tempt and test and persecute the lost. But they can also possess and hinder their salvation. And just speaking of that latter, hindering salvation, the Bible also pictures Satan and, by extension, demons as birds. Birds that come and swoop down and they steal the seed of the gospel 
as it is sown in the heart of people. Doesn't even give it a chance to penetrate. Remember the parable of the soils? Takes it away on the seed sown by the road. That's the role of Satan and demons. To snatch away the seed of the gospel from the hearts of the unbelieving, blinding their eyes, not even giving, giving them a chance to truly consider the gospel. Now, to be sure, demons cannot defeat the gospel. They can't destroy the seed. That's not possible. The seed, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. But if they can keep people from hearing it, or if once it's, once it's there, if they can distract them or cover it or, or push it away, then just the same, just the same, they keep people from salvation. Again, this is all unseen to us, unknown to us. It's in that spiritual realm. But nonetheless, this spiritual warfare, it's very real, going on all the time around us. At this time, though, we want to kind of shift gears and focus our attention on one specific action that demons can take in regard to the unregenerate, especially since this is what we've seen so much in the Gospel of Mark, and that is demon possession. We're going to shift gears now and talk more about demon possession. And that's question number eight. What is demon possession? Demon possession, the word of daimonizomai in the Greek, a couple other words used for it, refers to a demon or demons indwelling a person and exercising control and dominion over that person which cannot be resisted. I'm going to say that again. Demon possession refers to one or more demons indwelling a person and exercising control and dominion over that person which cannot be resisted. This is what differentiates demon possession from demon affliction. That internal possession versus that outward affliction. Possession means the demon is indwelling, the demon is in control, and the demon cannot be resisted. And that's why you need deliverance. That's why deliverance is needed. You can't deliver yourself. You're, you're enslaved. That's what we've seen so far. Isn't that what we saw last week? The Gerasene demoniac. We established earlier that true believers cannot be possessed. So this is another way of saying that if you're truly saved, if you're truly saved, a demon can never indwell you. A demon can never control you. And you can resist them. And that's exactly what 1 Peter 5.9 says, by the way. Resist them. This is not the case for the unregenerate, though. They can be possessed. Let's ask this question, number nine. How did a person become demon-possessed? How did a person become demon-possessed? The Bible doesn't really say. No clear answer is given. No special answer. Some people have the idea, if, if you're just a really rotten sinner, if you're just really bad, you're really wicked, then you're going to open yourself up to demon possession. But that can never really be supported in Scripture. You just don't find that. There's no sense that people who were possessed were necessarily more evil than others before they were possessed. It's really interesting. Whenever Jesus casts a demon out from people, he never rebukes them. Not once. He never tells them to repent. He never scolds them for getting possessed in the first place because they're so wicked. Not once. He always just casts them out. 
and treats the person like they're a bystander. The only biblical link we have to the possible source of demon possession is involvement in idolatry, false religions, and the occult. We already referenced several passages linking demons to false religions. So all we can say is that people with deep backgrounds in the occult seem to be more likely to be demon-possessed. But the Bible doesn't really say. So we have to leave it there. Question number 10, though. How was demon possession recognized? How was demon possession recognized? And one significant aspect of demon possession is physical deformity. Physical deformity. Demons have the ability to physically afflict humans. We see demons being responsible for muteness, deafness, blindness, dumbness, seizures, self-mutilation. But, but listen carefully. Not all sickness is due to demons. In fact, I would say the vast majority of sickness is due to what? Just living in a fallen world. Just sickness. Don't confuse that. However, demon possession did often come with its own brand of sickness. Demons also often affected the mind, producing a form of madness or torment, very bizarre behavior in people. But again, get this very clear. Demon possession is not the same thing as dementia, schizophrenia, and other mental disorders. Alex Konya, in his book on demons, points out two huge differences between mental illnesses and true demon possession, namely rationality and relationship. Demons were always rational and logical. They spoke with clear purpose and meaning, and they had real discussions, relationships. This is not the same with schizophrenics, people with dementia. They have lost rationality and reasonability. It's gone. But demons always had this, a very clear understanding of self and others. It's very different. Also, demons were recognized by supernatural abilities. The person who was possessed had some strange abilities, like a supernatural knowledge, a clairvoyance, where they knew things they, they shouldn't otherwise have known. A supernatural power. They were able to do things they shouldn't have been able to do, like, like break chains of iron. And then there's a supernatural personality. It's where the lights are on, but someone else is home. The most interesting fact, though, is that in Christ's day, there is no difficulty in identifying a demon-possessed person and differentiating it from just sickness. There's never an issue. It's just it's obvious. This person's sick, this person's sick, but they're also demon-possessed. Very easy, and even we see unbelievers, Gentiles, distinguishing between the two. Take, for example, Matthew chapter 15. This this pagan, Syrophoenician woman, this Gentile woman, comes up to Jesus, begs him for mercy on behalf of her daughter, who is cruelly, not sick, but she says, demon-possessed. And here is, at the time, this unbelieving Gentile, And she has no problem discerning that her daughter is not just sick, but demon-possessed. And she was right. We find that only a little perception was needed to differentiate between sickness and demon-possession. 
only a little bit of discernment was needed to differentiate between, well, this guy's got epilepsy. This person has a demon, which also has manifesting epilepsy. It, didn't, it wasn't rocket science to differentiate between the two. Back then, it, it was apparently obvious. Now, we're going to talk about this more later, but we can see for now, back then, there's a very clear enslavement of the person by another personality. That's kind of the kicker. The person wasn't just sick, but it was as if their body was hijacked by another personality. Another personality was residing within. Again, not schizophrenia because this was logical, reasonable, rational. A very clear personality, but nonetheless, that was involved. The person was unable to resist and hence needed deliverance. This brings us to number 11, question 11. How did Jesus deal with demons? What did he do? We'll be brief here because we've seen this already plenty of times in Mark. You know the answer. He cast them out. That's it. That's all he did. He just cast them out. He drove the demon out of the person, freeing them from the demon's control. This deliverance was complete. It was instantaneous. There was no battle. There was no struggle. He didn't even pray. He just spoke, and with a word, the demon had to leave. He was forced to just vacate. Sometimes Jesus even cast the demon out long distance. That's what he did with the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. She was miles away, but he cast her out. This brings us to a very key concept that you must understand. Pretty simple, though. It's authority. Authority. Jesus, being God, has full, 100% authority over all creation. And you bet that includes demons. And they know it. They know it. When they encounter Jesus, they don't, they don't run up to him and attack him. They run up and they fall down before him. They bow the knee because they have to. They submit to him. They beg him for mercy because they know he has full authority over them. Isn't that precisely what we saw last week with the legion of demons inside the garrison man? And it was by that authority that Jesus cast them out and he made them leave. The person was freed. Let's go to this, number 12. Who else in the Bible had authority over demons? So we see this from Jesus. Anyone else do this? Well, very shortly in Mark, we're going to see him extending his authority to the 12. His authority to preach, his authority to heal, and his authority to cast out demons, and they do so. And then later in in Acts, we see some of the apostles again casting out demons. And they always do it exactly the same way that Jesus did. There's no battle. There's no struggle. Just they speak, and with a word, with authority, the demons leave. They have to leave. It's by Christ's delegated authority. They're met with complete and immediate success. There is one exception in Mark chapter 9 where the apostles were unable to cast out a demon. But Jesus later reveals it was because of their lack of faith in their commission and his authority. And that would not happen again. On occasion, Jesus also extended his authority to 70 of his disciples. We learn in Luke chapter 10, he sends out 70 to preach, to heal, and to cast out. They do this as well. We're led to believe this was a temporary empowerment, though. 
These 70 are not commissioned like the 12 after the resurrection to continue working these wonders. And then finally, I'll mention Philip the Evangelist from Acts chapter 8. He's a good example of a guy who wasn't an apostle, but he was an apostolic delegate. He was a man delegated by the apostles to go, to preach. And he was given the sign gift of healing. And with that came casting out demons. So he went, he worked wonders, he preached, and many came to believe through Philip, the evangelist. So apart from this, though, we've got Jesus, we've got the 12, on one occasion the 70, and then a handful of apostolic delegates. Apart from this in Scripture, is there anyone else? No, that's it. No one else is seen to legitimately cast out a demon in all of Scripture. Only a a very select few ever worked these signs, these wonders. And we definitely don't get the picture that your average, ordinary Christian had this ability. That this was expected all Christians should be able to cast out demons and, and speak to them, bind them, and so on and so forth. You definitely don't get the picture this was a common ability. It was for a very select few at that. And I know this leads us to another question, big question. And I'm sure some of you are wondering right now, number 13. Well, do believers today have the same authority over demons? Do all, or even some believers today, have this same authority over demons? And that's really the big question here that that we want to get to. Because look, we, we get it. Okay, demons are real. Possession is real. And it's still today real. People need to be delivered. So, so can we cast them out just like Jesus did? Just like the apostles did? Do we have that same authority over demons? And can we do the same thing? And the answer is very clear. No. No, you can't. You do not have that same authority to cast out demons. Don't misunderstand. All Christians have the privilege of prayer. God still heals people. God still delivers people. Of course he does. And through prayer, we can ask God for mercy, and maybe he will. We don't know his will, but maybe he will. However, you do not have any longer the individual authority, the gifting to do these wonders, to cast out demons. Casting out demons belongs to the same category of special abilities in Scripture known as the sign gifts. Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to all believers at salvation, In the first century, right after Jesus, before scripture was written, God gave select men special gifts for a special reason. These men were known as the apostles and prophets. Two categories. Their mission was very clear, to provide a foundation for this brand new church, Ephesians 2.20. And what was that foundation to consist of? The preaching of the word, preaching Christ. They were to go and tell people about Jesus. That was their mission. But remember, it was a very radical message that they had. They were telling people about this guy, Jesus. He was a Jewish carpenter, but he's also the Messiah. And he's God in the flesh. He came, he lived, then he died on a cross, then he rose again. And now if you believe in him, you'll have everlasting life. And who's going to believe that? To Greeks, that's foolishness. To Jews, it's a stumbling block. So who on earth would ever believe them in that message? 
And scripture had not been written that, at that time, the New Testament. So they could not appeal to scripture's authority. And that's why God made them the authority. They were the authority. Their word was the authority. And to prove this, to demonstrate their God-given authority, God gave them the ability to perform signs and wonders. These signs had the very clear purpose of demonstrating the authority of the person and authenticating them that they, their words were coming from God. These signs included healing, prophecy, speaking in tongues, casting out demons. They're called in the Bible the signs of the apostles. That's their label, the signs of the apostles. And these abilities belonged only to them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be the signs of the apostles. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Paul is defending his apostleship and he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul himself defines the signs of a true apostle. Signs, wonders, miracles. Same thing, Hebrews 2, chapter, uh, Hebrews 2 verses 3 and 4. He says, how, can, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. That's the apostles, those who heard. And God was testifying with them. So stop here. How is God testifying of salvation through the apostles? How? It continues, by signs and wonders and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's very clear. But once the apostles and prophets passed away, scripture was written, the sign gifts passed away as well. And accordingly, when it comes to casting out demons, just like Jesus did and the apostles, that ability has passed away. Again, it doesn't mean you can't pray. You have the privilege of prayer. You can pray for someone to be healed, of course, and God might. But you do not have the special gifting and authority to go and heal at will or to cast out demons. At will. In actuality, the Bible doesn't even mention casting out demons as as its own spiritual gift. It's not even listed. Most likely this is because this ability was included with healing. The Bible doesn't confuse demons and disease. Don't get that wrong. But deliverance from both was categorized as a healing. They went hand in hand. Back to the Syrophoenician woman. When Jesus cast the demon out of her daughter... He pronounced the daughter healed. They go hand in hand. And just as the sign gift of healing is gone today, so is the ability to cast out demons. Now, we all know that there are many Christians today who believe that's not true, that you can heal, you can. Everyone should be able to do this and cast out demons. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. But just understand, to get there, you must twist Scripture and you must redefine the gifts. It must re- be redefined because everyone knows, just look, just by observation, no one's healing people like Jesus did. I mean, show, show me the blind receiving sight, the deaf hearing, the quadriplegic standing up, the stage four cancer being healed. Just, just show me. I don't think so. We all know it's not happening. That's because the gift is gone. God can heal, of course, but the gift is gone. And the, so is the special ability and authority to cast out demons. Do you think it's a coincidence? Listen to this. Do you think it's any coincidence there's not a single command or instruction in all of the New Testament epistles about demon possession 
or how to cast out demons. Did you know that? There's not even a single reference to demon possession or casting out demons in the entire list of New Testament epistles written for our instruction. Not one. Not even a reference. It's almost as if the writers of Scripture were trying to prepare the church for a time when the sign gifts had passed away. Just a special note, the last record of casting out demons in the Bible is found in Acts 19. It took place around 53 to 56 A.D., somewhere along there. It's just about the time when the sign gifts were fading away. The last miracle of any sort recorded in Scripture is in Acts 28, which took place in A.D. 58. That's just less than 30 years after Jesus in Acts 28. And after that, we note a very interesting trend. Let's think about this. In A.D. 60, Paul had a fellow minister named Epaphroditus. And he became sick unto death. But Paul didn't heal him. Like, Come on, Paul, I'll just heal your friend. Then after that, A.D. 62, two years later, Paul's own child in the faith, his favorite, Timothy, had a, had a stomach ailment. I mean, it's not even that big of a deal, just a stomach ailment. Come on, Paul. But Paul didn't heal him. He actually prescribed him a, a form of ancient medicine. A couple years later, A.D. 64, Paul had an associate who was so ill, he was going to die maybe, and Paul left him behind uncured. He's like, I got to go, I got to move on. Paul left him behind sick. Like, Paul, come on, just heal the guy. This is the same Paul who healed people at will, countless people. He even rose someone from the dead. So what's going on? Well, it's the sign gifts were designed to taper off and end as the church's foundation was laid to rest on Scripture's authority, the ability to heal and cast out demons hand in hand, like Jesus and the apostles did, is gone. Now, right now, I know you're still thinking, you're still wondering, well, if our ability to cast out demons like Jesus did is gone, then, well, what are we supposed to do? Because this still happens today, right? Demons still exist, possession still real. Like, what does God expect us to do? And also, what what exactly do we make of all those Christians who claim it's still going on? They have these magnificent stories. They have these experiences that they know it's true. They encountered a demon. It worked. They cast him out. What do we make sense of that? Or rather, how do we make sense of that? Well, you can tell we've got some more questions to handle. And we're going to pick up where we left off next time. We'll answer those questions. We'll get to all of that. For now, let me just say, I hope, even with our time today, that you're better equipped with the truth. We haven't answered every question. We haven't even talked about spiritual warfare today, what it's really like. But we have covered, I think, that the most helpful and encouraging truth in this whole discussion. And it is this, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And hold on to that. Let that be your takeaway from all of this. No matter what, you should never fear being overcome by evil. Never. Never fear them robbing you of of your hope in the Lord, your joy, your salvation. Stand firm in Him. Hold fast to your confidence in Christ and you will never be shaken. You are safe in Him. You are secure in Him. That's the most important thing. That's the most encouraging thing to remember. Nothing can separate you. So the real question then is, do you know Christ? Have you given your life to him? It is a mind-boggling message that if you 
confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That is a a mind-blowing message, but it's true. So have you done that? And for those who have, just be encouraged and be reminded you have no need to fear evil. Christ has overcome evil. You have victory in him. You are safe and secure in him. And let that be your source of hope and joy in the Lord. Finish where we read Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this is always a fitting passage to end our time on. We could do it every week. It's a reminder our souls need each and every week, each and every day. Because we are sinners, we fall short of your glory. Even still we sin. And we can be afflicted by, by evil. Spiritual warfare is real. We can be tempted, tested, persecuted. We can be discouraged. And that's why we need this constant reminder. Lord, you knew when you saved us that we were sinners, that we were lost, that we were enslaved under the bondage of sin and Satan, yet you freed us and you rescued us from those things. And you will continue to do that. You will not let your new creation go to waste. Our salvation is secure in Christ. Let that be our hope as we leave here today. We look forward to this week, the Passion Week, the week of Christ, as we remember his entry into Jerusalem the the days before his death. That is our hope. This message that this man, this God-man came to live, to die for us, to rise, that we would not have to fear and be in bondage to sin and Satan and evil, that we could be redeemed for your glory. That's a, a marvelous thought, not just a thought, a truth that we take dear. I pray it impacts our lives and we live accordingly. Encourage us in your truth this week. Keep us free from the evil one. And we look forward to coming back next time, learning how we are to deal with spiritual warfare biblically waging war against the evil one, standing firm in our faith. And give us greater faith to do that, Lord. It is in your name we pray. Amen.